In the gospel, God is in the business of glorifying himself. God glorifying God. So above and beyond everything else, beyond all of the other things that attract our attention, God is magnifying his own majesty. You know well the shorter catechism, how it opens, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that is true. But it is true because first and foremost, God aims at fetching Himself glory. And so we are called to do the same. Now, modern Christianity has inverted this. Modern Christendom has turned it upside down and on its head And now we have presented to us the idea that God is a means to our end. God is a means to our end. And it comes in a lot of different ways. We cannot sterilize it. We can't somehow keep it packaged in a category like the health and wealth gospel. Its tentacles have reached deep into the evangelical world and even into those who stand within the Reformed heritage, and it comes in a variety of ways, subtle ways. People are attracted to the true religion because you can have all of your marriage problems solved, solid marriage. You can have a lovely family. You can be furnished with resources on how to use your gifts and vocation and so on. People are attracted to what they see as a a robust worldview, through which they can understand uh, the cosmos and all that is around us, and preaching is reduced to such, where we're learning about the Christian view of this and of that and of the other thing. Other people are attracted to the Reformed faith because of the theological acumen, because of the riches, the, the irresistible and intoxicating attraction of doctrine that is irrefutable and that sparks one's thoughts and imagination. But in all of this, we can lose the heart of the matter altogether because God is at the center of all of these things. And in the gospel, God provides us a window through which we gaze upon God. Every gospel promise is its own window. Every promise provides us a window through which we look upon the promiser himself. God openly disclosing and manifesting his glory through the preaching of the gospel. He's the one who's planned it. He's the one who's accomplished it. He's the one who applies salvation in order to show himself and in order to show His glory. So the question is, how so? How so? How is it that God reveals His glory in the gospel? Well, the assigned topic this morning is gospel results. Gospel results, which we'll consider together with the Lord's help under the biblical theme of reconciliation. The gospel results in God reconciling sinners unto Himself by Jesus Christ. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, which has been read more than once so far in this conference, we read in verses 18, 19, and 20 these words, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Well, why should we highlight reconciliation in particular within this context and within this particular topic? And the answer is because reconciliation compresses, it compresses all of the gospel results into a single sparkling diamond. And I'll give you three corroborating testimonies to this effect. First of all, the Puritan Stephen Charnock says, if there be any mystery in Christianity more admirable than another, it is this of reconciliation. Professor John Murray refers to it and says that there is no category more basic to the gospel. And J.I. Packer says, plainly, reconciliation is the heart of the gospel according to Paul. And of all of the great words that the New Testament uses to explain the saving work of Christ, redemption, justification, and the rest, reconciliation is perhaps the most full and expressive. The clarion blast of the gospel peels out in the preaching of reconciliation. And those who by God's grace are brought under its power are led to sing in the words of the metrical edition of Psalm 89 verse 15, O greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know, in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. So what is reconciliation? What exactly is reconciliation? Well, it entails the restoration of friendship and of fellowship between two parties that have been alienated due to an offense. So, a breach is healed. Peace is restored. There is an exchange of animosity for amity, an exchange of enmity for friendship. In Adam, mankind goes from being foes, uh, goes from being friends of God to foes. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, believers are brought from being foes to friends. While reconciliation includes a, a legal transaction that secures a pardon for believing sinners from God as a judge, it is far more than that. It is far broader than that because reconciliation brings them into the intimate orbit of God's friendship as a recipient of the fullness of God's love. 
is relational as well. And so we're going to consider this theme of reconciliation under, under three points this morning. First of all, the source of reconciliation. First of all, the source. The source of reconciliation is God Himself. The source is God Himself. You see it here in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. Verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. God is the one who is the source. And this is all the more astonishing to us given the native condition and the extent of enmity that exists between God and man. You think of Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21 where it's talking about reconciliation. It says, and having made peace through the blood of cross, of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. Here God is initiating reconciliation against the backdrop of alienation and of of hostility and of animosity. And I think that the idea, the idea of enmity is all but lost on 21st century Americans. We don't have experience of real enemies. We can barely conceive of it, unlike some in the past, unlike many elsewhere in the world at present. Enemies that abuse your family. Enemies that kill your loved ones. That burn your house and all of your belongings to ashes. That drive you from hearth and home with relentless, sustained pursuit. Month after month, year after year, and so on. We know nothing of what it is to have a true enemy. But my friends, even the famous, all of the famous wars and and feuds depicted in literature and in the annals of history cannot compare to the intense enmity that exists between fallen man and God. The divide is deeper. The breach is broader. The hostility is hotter. And the conflict is incomparable to any other. This is why it is nothing less than delusional. Nothing less than delusional. When false teachers and preachers get up in the words of the prophet and say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. The Lord tells us there is no peace for the wicked. They are at war with Almighty God Himself and minimizing enmity, this enmity. It's not just denying the need that man has, it is also diminishing the provision that God has made for us. Now, this enmity is two-sided, as you know. There's the aversion of the creature to God and the aversion of God toward the creature. On one hand, you have natural man, and natural man, unconverted man, is at war 
with God, engaged in a fierce conflict, engaged in a spiritual coup, opposing all that God is. And he maintains a position of determined animosity. There is no man outside the state of grace who has indifference. There is a positive, fierce, unrelenting opposition to all that God is. As we saw in Colossians 1, enmity, enemies in our mind by wicked works. It's not just that men are estranged from God, they are haters of God comes out in the second commandment, doesn't it? Where it speaks of the Lord visiting uh, the iniquity of the fathers upon their children and so on. And it ends by saying, and them that hate me. And them that hate me. Paul picks up on this in Romans 1 where he describes describes the unconverted and says that they are haters of God. Or you think of how this is crystallized, how it is made concrete and tangible in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ when He says in John 7, verse 7, the world hateth me. The world hateth me. Here is God that is manifest in the flesh. And what happens? Isaiah 53 tells us He is despised. He is rejected by men. And why so? The Lord says, they that hate me love death. Here you see the spiritual irrationality, hating the Lord Jesus Christ because of a love of death. Those who are under the power of sin and who grip sin with all of their might, white knuckles and all, and will not let go of it. That attachment to sin results in a revulsion and an opposition to God Himself. And so there is this war with God, and there is peace with sin, and unbelievers align themselves with the devil and are enlisted in His service. And all the while, this sin is the contradiction of God, right? The very very nature of sin is enmity with God, the Bible tells us. Sin is opposed to God. Sin desires to dethrone God. Sin desires to obliterate the law of God, to cancel the judgment of God. And yet in all of this, it's utter futility. It is an exercise of utter futility to describe fallen man as an army of ants pouring out of their sandcastle. To wage war on God would be a a grossly exaggerated compliment. They find and stand no possibility of a favorable outcome in the conflict. And that is because not only are, are the natural, is natural man opposed to God, but God is opposed to them as well. As woeful as all that we have said is, the full picture is far worse. Why? Because God cannot be in His being In His very essence, He cannot be indifferent towards sin. And so, as we have already heard previously, the unconverted abide under the wrath of Almighty God. They abide under that wrath so that every breath that the unbeliever takes is a provocation of God, stealing God's air in order to use it and employ it against Him. This is the nature 
of the circumstances. Hodge commenting on Romans 5 where it speaks about when we were enemies of God. He says, Charles Hodge, there is not only a wicked opposition of the sinner to God, but a holy opposition of God to the sinner. What comes with that? At the great expulsion, when man is thrust out of the Garden of Eden, and the doors are bolted lock, and the barrier is placed with no access to be given, not only is man being separated from the favorable presence of God, but he is being sent out into God's world, surrounded by God's world, so that even what he finds there is a source of conflict. There are the thistles, the weeds, having to labor under the sweat of his brow, and so on. Even the very sun blisters him, and the snow freezes him, and his own conscience testifies, tormenting him, the voice of God proclaiming war against his ungodly deeds. This is the nature of every unconverted sinner, the circumstances in which they find themselves placed within the crosshairs of God Himself. And yet, some of you are gathered here today, and you are easily diverted. You're easily distracted. You're able to occupy yourself with all sorts of other thoughts, ambitions, plans, desires, and so on. And there, in the deadness of your own soul, you try to enliven yourself with your recreations and these other things that tickle your fancy and entertain you, and so on. And in light of these truths, in light of these realities, who cares about your recreations and all of these other diversions? How can you sleep at night? That's the question. How is it possible that you can lay yourself down in bed and in slumber slip into unconsciousness while living under the wrath of God and being at war with the King of heaven? This is spiritual insanity, and it is exactly what sin results in. Spiritual insanity. Now, normally, if there is a conflict between two people, so for example, you speak angry words to a friend or to a loved one, it is ordinarily the offender who goes to the one that is offended in order to seek reconciliation. And then the one who is offended is the one who has to grant that reconciliation, to grant peace, pardon, and forgiveness, and so on. But in the gospel, it is God who takes the initiative. In the gospel, God, as the offended party, is the one who initiates this whole business of reconciliation. He is the source. He is the one who secures it. He is the one who offers it. He is the one who affects it. And more specifically, notice what we see here in 2 Corinthians 5. It is especially the Father that is in view. It is the agency of God the Father. In verse 18, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ. That's the Father. Verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. That's the Father. You saw the same thing in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 
22. It is the Father's initiative, the Father's action, the Father's commission. This is the fruit of God the Father's love, God the Father's design and gift. It is God the Father who sent forth His own Son out of His bosom in the fullness of time in order that He might reconcile sin-stained, hell-deserving sinners unto Himself. But the action of the Father is mediated through the Son, as you see in these words. He was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself. We're told that He reconciles us to Himself by Jesus Christ. How does the Father accomplish it? Well, His action is mediated through the Son. It is through Christ. It is by Christ. It is in Christ. So that the Son's own action is joined inseparably with the Father in securing the reconciliation of His own people. And likewise, the ministry of the Spirit comes into play. And it is the ministry of the Spirit who applies this who brings it to its fruition so that the love of God is shed abroad in the hearts of His people by the Holy Ghost. Now, what does this mean? If God is the source, if God is the one showing the initiative, then it it accentuates God's willingness. Against all of the backdrop of enmity and alienation, God is willing to be reconciled to sinners. Now, there are some of you who are sitting here this morning, and I can see your mind spinning. I can almost hear your thoughts. And you're saying to yourself, well, I know. I know that God is able to reconcile sinners. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God has divine power, and as the omnipotent Redeemer and Savior, He is able to snatch brands from the fire and to draw them unto Himself. But is He willing? And for some of you, it is that question which is plaguing you and pressing upon you. And you're thinking to yourself, is He willing? Can I be sure that He is willing to receive sinners such as myself? I want you to to picture in your mind a young man who grows up born and raised in the most loving of all homes. He's surrounded with comfort. He's surrounded with all of the support that he could desire, his parents waiting upon him hand and foot, pouring out generosity upon him, furnishing him with everything, seeking his good, his success, his usefulness, and so on. And yet that young man grows up and begins to harden his heart against his parents. His heart is calcified against them, and that grows and it spreads like a plague over his soul until finally it breaks externally out of him, and he speaks wicked words of vitriol and hatred toward his parents, and he wounds them and breaks them, and he repudiates all that they are, and he tells them, I'm rejecting you. I'm rejecting all that is associated with you. I'm leaving. I never want to see this place again. And out the door he goes. He moves several states away to a different part in the country. Weeks pass, months pass, years pass. He gives himself to his own lust and all of his own pursuits, the, the character of disrepute and degrading himself 
and the satisfaction of his own evil lusts and so on, and eventually cracks begin to form. And that gives way to a a greater brokenness. And under the full weight of all of his own wickedness, crushing down upon him, he is brought to brokenness. And in the process, his, first of all, his thoughts begin to turn toward home, and his mind is racing, and he's thinking of all that his parents are, all that they've done. He's thinking about all that he is and has become and all that he has done. He thinks of all of the conversations that had taken place, the pleading of his parents and all that he had done uh, to wound and hurt them, and the brokenness is driven deeper into his own soul, and he thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks, and eventually it sinks down into his heart, and a longing arises, a longing for home, a longing to see the face of his parents again, and yet he's sure, he's confident, he's utterly convinced that is impossible. He has, he has burned the bridges to the ground. He has left no path of return to himself. And yet the throb of his own heart leads him to eventually sit down and he begins to pen a letter to his parents. And he pours his soul into that letter. And he tells them, I expect nothing. Indeed, I'm sure that nothing can be given. But I desire this one thing. If possible, that I might at least lay my eyes upon you again in this life. And so he tells them that he's going to be taking a trip where he'll pass through uh, the town, his hometown And he knows, of course, that the railroad tracks run behind his house, that the backyard butts up against them. And he tells his parents, I'm going to be on the train, and it'll be on this day. I'm going to be passing through on a trip. And if you're willing to allow me to come home, hang a single white dishcloth on the clothesline. And as I'm passing by, I'll look out the window. If it's there, I'll know. I'll stop at the the next station, and I'll amble through the streets and make my way home. And if not, it's perfectly fine. I understand. I'll carry on my own way. Well, days pass until finally the day comes. He boards the train. He engages in this this journey. And the hours pass until eventually he's approaching his his hometown. And at this point, of course, his his heart is racing and his, his mind is full of anxiety. He's overwhelmed with apprehension. What is it that they'll say? What will be the verdict on this? Beads of, of sweat appear on his forehead. His hands are clammy as he's gripping the, the, the armchairs. His, his chest is thumping within him, and as he rounds that last corner, knowing that he's going to be approaching the house, he can barely bring himself. He can barely bring himself to look. And he thinks, I can't look, I won't look, until at the very last second he forces his face and casts his gaze into the backyard. And there he sees white dishcloths lined all the way along the clothesline. White dishcloths hanging from the windows, attached to the house, strewn over every tree in the backyard. White dishcloths covering the lawn. Well, the message is clear as crystal, isn't it? Come home, son. We will take you. We will be reconciled to you. My dear friends, in the wonder of the glory of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Lord is accentuating His willingness. He is far more willing to receive penitent, believing sinners and to embrace them and to bring them into fellowship within Himself than they are ever to receive Him. Here you have it in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Every single gospel minister is sent forth as an ambassador out of the throne room of the King of heaven, and with His commission and full authority, His own word put in their mouth, He comes to some needy sinners like yourselves, and He says, God says to you, be reconciled to Him. Come to Him. Receive Him and lay hold of Him, and He will have you. But even for the genuine believer, there are still these lurking fears and anxieties that so often stick fast, and the believer labors under apprehensions about the Father's disposition of love to them. Here you see, the Lord is saying, look through the window of the gospel to gaze upon God Himself, the glory of the Father's love in the gospel. Owen says in his book on communion with God, unacquainted with, with, our miser- with our mercies, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice, and to be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints are experimentally acquainted with the privilege of holding imme- immediate communion with the Father in love. Well, we have the source of reconciliation. Secondly, the nature of, of reconciliation. My dear friend, you have to be perfectly righteous for there to be peace with God. It is open war. You have to be perfectly righteous for there to be peace with God. So, on what possible grounds could God say that you are perfectly righteous when in fact you are definitely not? Here enters onto the stage the eternal Son of the eternal Father who assumes to Himself a true body and a reasonable soul and comes and tabernacles among us. And we find in Him the glory of God's grace opened up in all of its riches because the Lord Jesus Christ alone is suited to be the one who reconciles, by whom sinners are reconciled unto God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the incarnate Word. He is the one that is loved infinitely by the Father the one who never offended the Father, the one who was able to satisfy the Father, the one who as the God-man in all of His work has infinite efficacy and worth in all that he, He accomplishes. And so God secures this peacemaking and reconciliation by the blood of the cross, as Colossians 1 says, by the death of His Son, as Romans 5 verse 10 says. 
It is through these means that the barriers are removed, that guilt is taken away, that pollution is cleansed through the sacrifice, the shedding of the blood of Christ for the remission of sin, the propitiation of, what we, of which we heard of earlier, the appeasing, the satisfying, the pacifying of God's wrath, and all at the greatest possible, the greatest conceivable cost. God Himself paying in full for His enemies, right? Redeeming sinners. This whole concept of redemption includes the idea of slavery. Redemption includes the idea of slavery. There never is and never will be a universal emancipation. Never. Because everyone outside of the Lord Jesus Christ is a slave to sin and slave to the devil. And the Lord comes and we're told that the believer is bought, purchased like a slave, bought with a price. We're told that the believer is a captive who is set free at the cost that is provided by God Himself. And they come from being slaves of sin to being servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're still servants yet but in all of the full liberty and glory of being the sons and daughters of the living God. We have sin and a broken law that must be punished, a law that must be kept and obeyed in perfection. And here angels come over and over attending the public worship, bending their ear to listen to the preaching of the doctrine of reconciliation. And one can imagine as if these angelic beings are saying, tell it to us again. Tell us again of the wonder and mystery and glory of the lawgiver that is condemned as a lawbreaker, of the crown of heaven who bore the horrors of hell, that he who is life died an ignoble death. Here is divine love that is opened up in all of its riches and the pagans will continue to mock it and the ignorant will ignore it. But the angels, the angels will adore it. Glory be unto the Lamb that was slain. This great exchange of which we heard here in our text in 2 Corinthians 5, for He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Here Christ taking the sins, the full load of sins, the sins of His people upon Himself, and they are imputed to Him. They're reckoned to Him. They're credited to His own account in this legal transaction. He is not made sinful in terms of His nature. But just as with the Old Testament sacrifices, the priests would lay their hands upon the head of the sacrificial lamb, identifying themselves. And the weight of guilt symbolically and ceremonially borne by them, so the Lord Jesus Christ on behalf of His people. And Christ comes and He obeys the law a hundred percent. Here He comes and He, he secures a record of perfect righteousness, of law obedience. And that in exchange is imputed to the believing sinner so that they're clothed 
with Christ's own righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It is, it is one that is outside of themselves that is provided from Christ and it is once for all and it is equal in all of His people. Someone comes along and says to the Christian, looking at them adorned in all of the glistening white beauty of the garments with which they wear, are these, are these yours? No, no, the Christian must say. These are not mine. I have spent all my days in the rags, the defiled and polluted rags of my own sin. No, these have come from the Lord Jesus Christ. They are His, and they have been given and received by faith to His own glory. This change of status, the act of God declaring that His people are made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ, that the claims of the law have been satisfied. And how is this appropriated? How is it that needy sinners receive this? The Bible tells us by, by faith alone, without the deeds of the law. It is the Lord who, who calls us to come with faith in particular. Faith brings nothing. Faith comes and acknowledges spiritual bankruptcy. Faith comes and instead receives and rests upon Christ and all that He has, has accomplished. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is not some emotional experience. Faith is not wishing something to be true that is not true. Faith is not the opposite of reason. It is the most credible and cogent thing that a person can ever do in the exercise of their soul. It is laying hold of, receiving and resting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is God's one-time act and justification of His grace without merit, Christ's righteousness imputed to the believer's account. All of this brought to them in the fullness and in the freeness of God's own grace. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. Now, we often think of those words, him suffering for sin, the just for the unjust, but it continues, so that he might bring us to God. This is what is accomplished. The Lord is reconciling sinners to himself. Those who were once far off are brought nigh unto him. The creature's misery is, in those words, depart from me. Right? Separation is damnation. But the believer's happiness is be ye reconciled. Be reconciled. Bringing sinners unto God. We must hasten on. Thirdly, we have the consequences of reconciliation. We're thinking about the, the, the results of the gospel. The consequences of reconciliation. Five things that I would especially highlight. First of all, the believer is taken from war to peace with God. So it's transferred from war to peace with God. In reconciliation, they are brought into peace. Indeed, as Ephesians 2 says, God made peace. God made it. So we have the gospel of peace, 
in which we have set before us the Prince of Peace, and we have the preaching of peace by Jesus, in order that sinners might be brought to peace with God. People speak of peacekeeping missions, right? What does that entail in our own day? It entails tanks and airplanes and, you know, machine guns, ammunition, and so on, being sent off to another country. Peacekeeping forces used to be missionaries. Missionaries are those that are going into nations that are devoid of any knowledge of the truth in order to herald, in order to proclaim the wonder of the gospel of peace. In this peace with God, now the believer is brought into a place where God pities the believer. God is patient and forbearing and long-suffering. Indeed, God is protecting His people rather than there being this open war and conflict that exists. God says that He is a shield, that He is a defender. God is our refuge and our strength and straits, a present aid. The Lord is the one who now stands in the midst of His people. God is the one who comes. In that psalm that I've just quoted from Psalm 46, we are brought into the refuge, the psalm says. We are brought into God who is the refuge. But we're also told in that same psalm that God is brought in in His presence among us. God among us as well. Here, reconciliation, defense, support, protection, a shield. And this results, this peace with God results in the peace of God. So that that peace of God that passeth all understanding that is beyond the, the reach and grasp of our wildest imaginations whose circumference we cannot span. It passeth all understanding. That peace stands as a sentry over the hearts of God's people, guarding it, the peace of God. This makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? When the Lord in His infinite goodness and in His wisdom and in His love sends His people down into the valley of humiliation, brought under trial, brought under affliction, upheaval, difficulties, uncertainties, anguish, pain, and so on. And the believer knows that the Lord will never, ever send His people anywhere without Him. The believer is able to say, I will go wherever it is the Lord calls me, because we have the pledge and promise that God Himself will go with us. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. And so we recognize that even in trial, some of which are acute, some of which are very deep and very dark waters, that in the midst of all of these storms, to paraphrase an older author, all of those storms are blowing the Christian into God's own harbor. And so the believer is able to acquiesce, to come under the hand of God, to trust Him, to submit to Him, not begrudgingly, but to actually desire to will His will. Thy will be done. Rutherford speaks of giving the Lord a blank and allowing Him to write on it whatever He would will. Right? It's the idea of, in, 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 in modern 
vernacular, giving the Lord a blank check and saying, Lord, put on it whatever. Right? There's this submission and coming under the Lord because of the peace that God gives. There's the peace of conscience. The peace of conscience as well, that tranquility of heart and mind at rest in God's favor. No longer uh, an instrument of torment within the bosom of the believer, but a conscience that is exercised in God's service. A conscience that is sanctified by the work of God in the soul. A conscience which is brought under the Lordship the exclusive lordship of Jesus Christ. There is even peace. It spills over into to peace with the creature. In that Colossians 1 passage, it speaks of God reconciling heaven and earth. How so? You think of the angels. Where do we find the angels at the fall? There's an angel set at the door of the garden with a flaming sword preventing re-entry into the garden. What is the case for the believer? Hebrews 1 at the end tells us that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth from God to minister, to serve His people, to serve them. We're told by the Savior Himself that at death the Lord sends His angels to fetch the soul of the believer, to escort them into the immediate presence of God Himself. Even creation itself, which suffers under the fall, we're told in Romans 8 that the creation waits with breathless anticipation. What are they waiting for? The picture here is of a little child, and they're perhaps attending a wedding, and the bride is preparing to come in, and there's lots of people that stand up, and the little child is up on his tiptoes, you know, craning his neck in order to catch a glimpse of what everybody is looking at. That's the picture that's given to us. That all of creation is, is waiting in breathless anticipation for the manifestation, for the revelation of the sons of God. Looking for this consummation and the, the triumph and wonder of God as it were pulling the sheet off of His people and saying, here is what I've been about. Behold my bride without spot, without blemish, and all of the beauty with which I have adorned her. Behold my glory as it is manifest in her. There's even peace with men. Even peace with men. Proverbs tells us that God makes, that God works so that He makes His enemies to be at peace with Him. Our enemies to be at peace with us. There's Paul fomenting, breathing out cruelty, persecuting and seeking to dismantle and destroy the church. Peace is brought. It brought into the fold. Reconciled to God, thereby reconciled to His people. Secondly, second consequence is that believer is brought from alienation to access and acceptance. No longer shut out with the door bolted and locked, but given access and acceptance before the Lord. In that Romans chapter 5 passage, in verse 2 it says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And as we heard earlier in, in verse 10, there is this, this logical argument that unfolds. Since this is true, what flows from it is even more certain. So think in terms of 
You know, if learning Russian grammar is difficult for native Russians, then learning Russian grammar is even more difficult for English speakers. Here he is building this this sense of, of the unfolding wonder of the benefits that God gives. And he's saying it's not just that the believer is not condemned by God, but is in fact made friends, much more being reconciled. He shall be saved by his life. Here is Christ who is the door. Here is the believer entering in through the veil of his flesh, going from outside to inside, from far off to nigh, being broad and given access to the throne of grace to with boldness lay petitions before him. Verse 2 of this Romans 5 passage says, by whom we have access, notice how it goes on, into the, this grace wherein we stand. Wherein we stand. There is now spiritual stability. This is one of the most unsung Christian virtues in the modern era. The idea of spiritual stup- uh, stab- stability. Not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine like children. Not being moved and influenced by whatever you heard last. Not flitting here and flitting there, but being grounded and stable in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Confidence grounded in Him. Knowing that while much can be taken away from us, our health, our jobs, our money, our resources, our loved ones, and many more things, Christ can never be taken away. And that is enough. Because Christ is all in all. There's stability. In the midst of all of our fluctuations, feelings, and frames, all of the change, stability of God before us. If God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost before us, who can be against us? Thirdly, third consequence is that we are, the believer is brought from fear to joy. So in this Romans 5 passage in verse 10, and 11, really, if you look at verses 1 to 11, we have this, the, uh, Paul highlighting all of the benefits that flow from justification and reconciliation with the Lord. And as you read it, it's building. It's building, and he's, there's almost racing in it as he, as he unfolds these things. It's like an avalanche that would bury the believer <clears throat> in the benefits that God bestows upon him. Paul says, there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then in verse 9, and much more this, and then again in verse 10, and much more than that, there is even this. But then in verse 11, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The consequent fruit of joy. The joy of the Lord is the strength of His people. The believer is brought from from cowering fear into joy, into exulting and glorifying and boasting in God Himself and magnifying Him. Come, magnify His name with me, the Christian says. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. Notice that this is characteristic of the true Christian. 
the one who has truly come under the power of the gospel, not only near to the kingdom, but brought into the kingdom, their mouth bears evidence of it. Because all they can say is, what a God and what a Savior. And you can talk to them in this context, in that context, and yet they're always on about the same thing, extolling, worshiping, adoring, magnifying the Lord Himself. And it knows no restraint. And it knows no possibility of exaggeration. Here there is joy. The Lord tells, to his, tells His disciples, my joy will be in you. The very joy of Christ in the believer. What a wonderful privilege to be able to enter in and to have a share in the joy of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something even greater than that. In this world, Christ's joy is in us who know Him. But on the last day, what does the Bible say? God will say, enter now into the joy of the Lord. During this earthly pilgrimage, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, Christ's joy dwelling in the hearts of the believer. But on the last, do- on the last day, believers enter into His joy. Think of the difference. Children, you can, young people, you can take a cup, pour water into it, and then drink from that cup. Water is going into you. You have that concept. Now picture yourself going out onto a boat into the far reaches of the Atlantic Ocean. When you look 360 degrees, you can see nothing but water. And you stand on the ledge of that boat, and you jump into the ocean. Now you are in the water. This is what the Lord is giving to us. He is giving to us joy. All of the desires, all of the delights are centered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Fourthly, fourth consequence, we go from opposition to devotion. Rather than being opposed, rather than than seeking to unwind and undo and to resist all that belongs to God, there's a wholehearted devotion to Him. The Lord tells us that the believer is bought with a price, therefore, glorify God with your body. Your body is to be, in Romans 12, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him. The whole person is to be devoted fully and completely unto Him. God is not the means to your own personal end, but rather the believer is consecrated to Him and exists for Him and are created to extol His glory and to set forth His name. And as a consequence, the gospel weans us. It weans the believer from the fleeting, transitory things of this world. And all of the sudden, there's this transition. There is this cosmic shift that takes place. And no longer does everything, as it were, hang in the balance in terms of what's going on around us whether it be the high things and the big things in the world around us or within our own little world and circumstances. The Christian's heart and mind is fixed on one thing, a single thing, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing Him, being near Him, glorifying Him, being interested in His kingdom, the kingdoms of this world, one after another, the great empires like our, our, own, our own are cast one after another into the dustbin. 
and left to the annals of history. And there is one kingdom that endures and continues and triumphs throughout the whole of history. It is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian's whole life, their mentality, their affections, their desires, their pursuits, their ambitions, all of their priorities are fixed upon devotion to the Lord, to live under the Lord. No longer does the believer have their own time. People speak of my time. You know, I need me time. The believer knows nothing of that concept. There is no me time. It all belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't own anything. All of our resources are His. All of our pursuits are His. Everything is devoted to Him. In the fourth century, there was one of the patristics, one of the early church fathers, Basil of Caesarea. He was in the eastern Greek-speaking part of, of the church in a region called Cappadocia in what is central uh, modern Turkey. He lived during uh, the time of Emperor Valens, and Emperor Valens had commanded that the Orthodox were to work together with the Arians, who were heretics that had denied the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Basil refused. He, he defied the emperor. And so he sends, the emperor sends his prefect, Modestus, and Modestus summons Basil uh, before him. And Modestus says unto Basil, how dare you resist and defy so great a potentate? How is this possible? Basil says, because it is not the will of my true sovereign. Modestus flies into a rage full of angry, full of, of anger. Have you no fear of my authority? Have you no fear of my power? Basil replies, what power is that? Modestus says, why, I have the power of confiscation and of banishment and of torture and of death. Basil says, have you no other threats than that? Because none of these can touch me. At this point, Modestus is astounded. He's, he's bewildered, blinking in bewilderment. And he asks, well, how so? Basil replies, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, well, confiscation has no power over me because I have nothing for you to take. All that I have belongs unto him. It's all Christ. And what are you going to take but these few rags in my books? Banishment has no power over me because it's impossible. I am a pilgrim, a sojourner, a foreigner. I am venturing through a strange land and have no home here. And wherever I am taken in that pilgrimage, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Torture can lay no hold upon me. Because my body has been bought with a price. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are unable to touch my soul. And if you torture this body, the Lord will raise it up to glory on the last day. And death is no threat to me because death is merely my benefactor. And it will, you will send me sooner to the Lord for whom I live and to whom I am hastening. Modestus was dumbfounded. He said, no one ever spake to me that way. And then Basil replies, no doubt, taking a jab at the Arians. And he says, perhaps you have never met a true bishop because they all would have answered me, would have answered 
as I do. This devotion is a result of reconciliation. Lastly, and very briefly, we are brought from estrangement into fellowship and communion with God. What is fellowship? What is communion? In brief, it is giving and receiving. It is giving and receiving. You, the believer experiences it in the means of grace. At the Lord's t- table, there, is a, there are spiritual transactions that are taking place, and there is a giving and receiving that is happening, an interchange between heaven and earth where Christ is giving Himself, where the believers are receiving Christ and feeding upon Him by faith. And all of the fellowship, the same thing is true in the ministry of the Word. The same thing is true in prayer. There is this fellowship and communion with the Lord where as sin repels, the gospel glues together. And this communion is something that is beyond the scope of of what we can imagine because God comes in the communication of Himself to the believer and the believer's return of all that is required in union with the Lord Jesus Christ so that God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, who for all of eternity has dwelled in that perfect unity and love is pleased in the mystery and wonder of the gospel. And in particular, in the wonder of reconciliation, to take a believer up into and to have a share in that triune fellowship. Communion with the Father, communion with the Son, communion with the Holy Spirit. Well, this fellowship and communion leads to worship. In the gospel, God is glorifying Himself. The gospel is a means to the end of worship. Worship is never secondary, never tertiary, never peripheral, never down the list. Worship sits at the top of the list and always will. The Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God sends forth the message of reconciliation in the gospel in order that He might bring about those who are alienated from Him and to bring them unto Himself that they might worship Him. Evangelism and evangelistic preaching is indispensable. But my friends, in heaven, evangelism will cease. Worship will not. Worship is the end. The most potent form of application to any preaching at all is to bow down and worship the God of glory. This is what the Lord tells us, that we in time are to have a taste of this, to taste and see that the Lord is good, to have the thought of God brought into the mind of the believer savingly, to be able to revel in the wonder of His majesty, and to do so in anticipation that for all of eternity, this will be enjoyed with unfolding fullness, so that the believer will need a resurrected body to survive it in order to take in the wonder of beholding the glory of God in the face of the Lamb. We sing about this, and with this I close. We sing about this in Psalm 16. 
In the metrical version, before me still the Lord I set, saith, it is so that he doth ever stand at my right hand, I shall not move it be. Verse 11, thou wilt me show the path of life, of joys there is full store before thy face, at thy right hand are pleasures evermore. Let's stand together for prayer. Our gracious and eternal God in heaven, the God of all glory and the God of all grace, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the God who in infinite wisdom and in the wonder of divine love hath sent forth Thy Son to be a Savior of sinners, in order that sinners might be reconciled unto Thee. O Lord, grant that we would be humbled under such a thought, that the infinite expanse between sin and a holy God would be met by the infinite worth of the work of the infinite Son, enfleshed as the, as the Word incarnate. O Lord, grant to us, we pray, that we would be led indeed to worship, to glorify Thee, to adore Thee, to give Thee the praise that Thou art worthy of. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.